This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 265 of the world's most convoluted set of clues to the location of the Holy Grail. Have any of you got it yet? It's all there, just listen back to it. Anyway, I'm Andy Zaltzman, live... Hang on, let me just check that. Yes, live in London, and joining me from the greatest nation in the world on some criteria. It's the Protoceratops of the Pertinent, the Apatosaurus of the Apposite, the Iguanodon of the Incisive, the Tyrannosaurus Rex of the Trenchant Remark, the Velociraptor of the Very Relevant. It's the Queen of Comedy, by which I mean he's right on the money, John Oliver. (laughs) Hello, Andy. Hello, Buglers. Things have been more than a little odd here this week, Andy, and I'll tell you primarily why. Because the marketing campaign for my new show has begun here, and it's become clear that that is unfortunately going to entail my face being attached to things like billboards, taxis, buses, and subway walls. (laughs) Basically, any number of places where my face has no business being. Now, this is clearly going to lead to a number of things. One, me not wanting to go outside. Two, a lot, and I mean a lot of penises are going to get drawn on my face, Andy. Which is going to lead to three, me wanting to go outside to see them. That is the real circle of life that that cartoon mandrel was singing about at the start of The Lion King. Uh, I had had a very strange moment when I was walking home from work on Wednesday night. And I was waiting to cross the road. And a bus pulled up right in front of me with my face on the side of it. It stopped and I was literally looking straight into my own stupid face. (laughs) It pulled away and I was so disorientated I stepped into the road and I nearly got hit by another bus which also had my face on it. (laughs) And I I thought, I am not sure there is a more narcissistic way to die than being so distracted by staring at a bus with your face on it that you're killed by another bus also with your face (laughs) upon it. I think that literally might be an Aesop's fable, Andy, probably called the owl that was a dick or something like that. <laughs> I think they'll generally be coming down in a month, but until then, it's going to be a weird four weeks. <laughs> well, I can launch my own publicity campaign as well, Buglers. I've got Do some it. gigs to tell you about. There you uh, go. The Udder Belly, 17th of April, I'm doing Political Animal with Mark Steele. Jeremy Hardy and uh, a young comic called Joe Wells. Uh, so do find that on the Udderbelly website. And on the 1st of May, I'm doing Cricket versus the World at the Udderbelly, which will be a mixture of cricket and the world, as the title suggests, and a couple more political animal dates. 8th of May and 11th of June, uh, 12 days in Edinburgh in August, a week at Soho, and then a UK tour. Uh, later in the year, more details on that to follow. But do come on April the 17th. It should be uh, unusually good for one of my gigs given the quality of the other people doing it. Also, Andy, and I know we haven't checked in with this man for a while, but the Iron Sheik's Twitter <laughs> hit a new height this week. I don't know if you saw, but it turned out he was in New York this week. And I know that primarily because he announced that fact with a spectacular tweet, which read, and I quote, Never forget I am most ha- famous human being in the f***ing earth. <laughs> if you want to do interview with me in the New York, you let me know, face. That is a mic drop of a tweet, Andy. That's a poem. That's like announcing yourself at a party by walking in, standing in the middle of the room, unzipping your trousers, waving your penis around in a circle, point it while pointing at it with your other hand, and then saying, somebody get me a drink. <laughs> it's also basically what Jesus would be saying had he been around today instead of 
2,000 years ago and got yes. old enough to become confused by life. <laughs> so um, this is Bugle 265. 265, of course, the international dialing code for Malawi, which means if you are listening to this episode on your mobile phone, someone in the Malawian capital of Lilongwe will be able to steal all your emails and your high scores on your mobile games, such as Angry Birds, Candy Crush Saga, Donkey Death Slam, Billy the Adventure Turd, and The Pointless Descent into Technological <laughs> Solitude. Uh, this um, fourth of this we're recording on the fourth of April. Uh, this is the uh, for the week beginning Monday the seventh. The fourth of April, John, eighteen eighteen, was the day that America adopted the stars and stripes as its new flag. Mm. Then uh, thirteen stripes and twenty stars, beating off competitions from other designs, including a silhouette of the then president James Monroe, mooning King George the Third of England, a bison rut- rutting a trash can, and an outline of George Washington gunning a can of Budweiser whilst riding a jet ski. And uh, do you know what the stars were uh, originally for, John? No. Well, it yeah, was. Um, also do. Uh, yeah. Are you sure? It was to make it. It was to make it look spangly, Andy. Well, it wasn't that. It was um, because they were, they were going to print a load of um, pretty uncomplimentary words about the British. It's a kind of statement of their independence, uh, but they were considered a bit too offensive to have on a flag, so they were uh, going to be replaced with stars, exclamation marks, question marks, things like that. But the embroiderer uh, dropped the exclamation marks and question marks into a stray bucket of clam chowder, just as she was about to sew them on. So they just went with stars instead. No one knows what those words were going to be, but uh, they were pretty fruity. Um, Also, uh, 1954 on this day... Dwight Eisenhower gave his famous domino theory speech in which he explained the falling domino principle uh, of uh, what was assumed to be um, global politics. He said this, you have a row of dominoes set up, you knock over the first one and what will happen to the last one is the certainty that it will go over very quickly, said Eisenhower. So you could have a beginning of a disintegration that would have the most profound influences, he continued. This means that you can set up these really cool topples with like thousands of dominoes, they're really cool you can make them go up slopes and stuff and make shapes like the statue of liberty or something and you can make them set off catapults man i love dominoes anyway what are we talking about commies yeah they get everywhere eyes peeled everyone see you next week and to mark the anniversary of this domino's pizza has created uh, the limited edition ica-like pizza modeled on eisenhower's face with flavors from china korea vietnam thailand malaysia india and various other nations that were feared to be right in the communist toppling line in the uncertain world of post-war asia Top story this week, a doctor cups the Earth's balls in his hands and asks it to cough. It's a planetary health update! <laughs> um, the, uh, the UN released a major new climate report this week, and spoiler alert, the news isn't phenomenal. In fact, the news is so bad uh, that the climate scientists really should have asked the entire planet to sit down before they read the news (laughs) out and maybe handed out pamphlets to us entitled What to Do After You've Just Been Told That Your Planet Is Completely (laughs) Uh, The report stated that the impacts of global warming are likely to be severe, pervasive and irreversible, to which somewhere in the Arctic, a polar bear who was balancing on a tiny piece of ice, was about to say, Yeah, no shit! (laughs) (laughs) The the report was written and edited by 772 scientists who should have all been given matching baseball uniforms with the bad news bearers written on them. (laughs) Uh, The report itself argues that uh, world leaders basically have a few years left to reduce carbon emissions uh, enough to avoid catastrophic warming, which would lead to significant sea level rises and temperature shifts so dramatic that it would disrupt human life and natural ecosystems, to which world leaders essentially said, oh, God, that sounds terrible. Oh, that sounds, oh, boy, that sounds just awful. Um, 
Oh, someone should really do something about that. <laughs> well, look, uh, let me know when you've solved the problem and good luck with it. Um, seriously, good luck with it. Let me know if there's anything I can do um, that doesn't involve me changing anything. Fingers crossed for you, though, seriously. <laughs> oh, that sounds just awful. Oh, oh, what bad news. Oh, 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 well. Oh, don't overthink it. <laughs> Yes, severe, pervasive and irreversible. Coincidentally, the adjectives I use in my online dating profile. Um, and also, uh, but that's fine. I'm happily married. I don't really want anyone, anyone to go for me. I don't even know why I joined it. Actually, I do know it's because Bugler signed me up for it. Anyway, uh, also, um, coincidentally, uh, a description of the audience reaction. Severe, pervasive and irreversible. When I played the Manchester Comedy Store all those years ago. <laughs> But uh, I guess, John, you know, I mean, on, on the plus side, if they're irreversible, then, uh, you know, what's the big deal? We can't do anything about it. You cannot teach a dead dog to play the bassoon, as Aristotle said. Um, <laughs> but I guess uh, maybe finally after this report, uh, the time has come to wake up and not just smell the coffee, which smells uh, a bit off, uh, but also to smell that the coffee machine is on fire. And maybe, John, maybe we cannot keep pressing that snooze button that we've loved so for so long. Oh, what a lovely button. Yeah. God, it's the button. best, that button. <laughs> uh, commentary around the report said that it used much stronger language uh, around the current <laughs> impact of climate change than uh, in past international panel climate change releases. And sure, Andy, I mean, that might be true, but to be honest, I've read some of it, and the stronger language that it's using is still not nearly as strong as you might reasonably expect. I don't think anyone could complain if the report began, listen, you f***ing idiots. <laughs> I don't know how many... Times we have to say this, but this planet is fucked. It is completely and utterly fucked. And you know who fucked it? You! You fucking did! What part of you are fucking up this planet was it so hard for you to understand over the past 20 fucking years? Wait! You're not even fucking listening to me now, are you? What did I just say? Repeat back to me what I just said. You can't, can you? Oh, fuck! <laughs> Like you can complain, that's what I'm saying. That's a reasonable tone. That's like a young De Niro, John. Awesome stuff. <laughs> that's right. Very young, man. <laughs> like three. <laughs> there have been uh, concerns raised over the possible implications of uh, of uh, the, um, the warming of the earth, including mass migration, conflicts and national security issues, diminishing food supplies, problems mm-hmm. with biodiversity, life in the oceans, and on land undergoing massive and irreversible shifts as seas become more acidic and temperatures and habitats change. And the reactions have ranged from, oh my God, we're all doomed, to can I still go on cheap holidays to the Mediterranean, to <laughs> ooh, stroppy scientists, get them. Just the... <laughs> Kind of standard uh, range of responses. Michel Jarreau, the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization, said that previously people could have damaged the Earth's climate out of ignorance. He said, now ignorance is no longer a good excuse. Suggesting that in the past it was a good excuse. And he did not mention the other excuses, such as short-term financial expedience, electoral utility <laughs> and naked profiteering. I think they can still be used as good excuse. I do hope so, John. Because otherwise we are going to have to bite this unappetising climate bullet without so much as a squidge of consolation ketchup on it. <laughs> 772 scientists, John. But how yep. many non-scientists, John? It's always the scientists that get to write yes. these reports. How objective, Finally, how objective truth here. can they be, John? It should be written by people with absolutely no prejudices, preconceptions, knowledge yes, or experience yes. of these matters. Yes. That's, 
that's um, 12,000 peer-reviewed scientific studies went into this. Um, and I guess the sceptics probably reacted by thinking, wow, this conspiracy goes even deeper than we thought in the first place. That's it, Andy. Make them take a bite of your truth donut with your <laughs> fact jam squirted inside. Like you say, the, the reporter uh, came out. It's caused a bit of a consternation. Francis Benecke, uh, the president of the National Resources um, Defence Council, described the report as an SOS to the world. And sure, I guess it's like a warning message in a bottle, Andy, uh, washed <laughs> up by alarming... <laughs> alarmingly high sea levels. And it's a message that governments are going to read and then they're going to put that message back into the bottle. Then they're going to piss into that bottle, Andy, and then they're going to throw that bottle back out to sea. Uh, Which is not to say that there are not some very strong words flying around. In fact, uh, if we could harness the energy of political bloviating, we could have turned this whole global warming thing around just this week. Uh, Secretary of State John Kerry said, and I quote, "Uh, the costs of inaction on climate change will be catastrophic. And I actually like the honesty of that response, Andy. They will be catastrophic. I mean, they wouldn't be if we actually did something substantial about climate change, but we're clearly not going to do that. So the consequences of climate change needn't be catastrophic, but due to that whole inaction thing, they will. They will be. It's it's basically more honest than we've come to expect. Uh, did you say bloviating, John? Yes, I did. Yeah. Is that I mean, is that a word? Bloviating. Uh, it sounds like one. Well, and that, as far as I'm concerned, Andy makes it one. Okay, good. Good. I'm glad we've we've cleared that up. Um, the report uh, did suggest that poorer countries are likely to suffer, any guesses, more or less in the short term than richer countries. Any guesses, buglers? Uh, uh, when the lights are on, it's hard. Uh, more. <laughs> Shit. Less. <laughs> Shit. Oh, God. It's, it's, it's so much easier when you're at home. <laughs> well, it is, uh, it is more. You're, you're first, uh, you insti- always go with your instinct in these things, John. Uh, they like to suffer more. Poor. It's turning into a bad millennium for the poor, John. I know we're only... Uh, what, 14 years in, but uh, they've started very bad. It's like a Grand Prix. You've got to hit the first corner in front, otherwise you've got no chance. But the rich won't escape, said the report, but they will escape for longer. In which time, John, catastrophes by the bucket load yes. are imminent. This is the, we have to look for the positives in this. And uh, as we've seen recently, these catastrophes will crop up, uh, not just playing the markets when disasters are actually happening. Sure, that's fun. But we can also think longer term. Now, I know many of you listen to the Bugle for sound financial advice to secure your long-term investment future. <laughs> and having read this report from cover to cover, as I have, I would recommend that you should be buying shares in companies that make flood defences, inflatable dinghies, camp tents for refugees, aeroplanes that drop emergency food packages, and bulletproof tabards for TV journalists and global trouble spots, because those are going to be growth industries, John, big time. Well, you're right. I mean, some of the report does talk about these adaptation strategies, um, uh, such as increased production of seawalls and levees to protect against flooding, as well as more efficient irrigation for farmers in areas where water becomes scarce. So it seems they're basically painting the picture of a world where your choice will essentially be either to live in an area that is uninhabitably wet or uninhabitably dry. (laughs) Uh, The IPCC chairman, uh, Rajendra Pachauri, Uh, told a news conference when announcing the report that nobody on this planet is going to be untouched by the impacts of climate change. Now, the problem with that, Andy, is it just sounds like a challenge to rich people. (laughs) That's that's just going to make the wealthiest people in the world find a way to somehow live in special golden blimps, hovering (laughs) over weather systems, watching the rest of the world simultaneously catch fire and drown. Um, 
It's uh, very interesting things in the reports. Um, uh, it's highlighted the increasing incidence of extreme uh, weather, such as storms and flooding. Uh, and whilst most of the reports uh, does um, uh, suggest that this is due to climate change, there is uh, one as yet unpublished chapter um, uh, which claims that it is all due to the legalisation of gay marriage. So uh, <laughs> just go to show. Right. Science can prove, prove it isn't. <laughs> prove it isn't. And... Um, it also said this, it suggested that if warming were to go beyond 6 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit, um, as predicted by some climate models, quote, we would see extensive changes in agriculture. And when I heard those words, all I could think of was massive mangoes. Absolutely <laughs> massive. The size of dogs. Mangoes the size of dogs. I'm in. I'm in, Andy. Massive mangoes. Finally, <laughs> a positive spin on this. Gents, bloviation is a style of empty, pompous political speech, particularly oh, so there you go. with Ohio. Oh, back off your f***ing Scrabble <laughs> challenge, Andy. <laughs> I'll take my quadruple fact score. <laughs> bloviate. To bloviate. I'll put that in a sentence. Right. Andy Saltzman bloviated <laughs> the latest episode of The Bugle <laughs> to his regular <laughs> high standard. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> well, so I think you must have come across that because you've had it written into your HBO contract, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Child solutions to climate change now. And uh, part of the problem is that no one currently in power is going to be alive to experience any of the more dramatic consequences of their policies of inaction on this issue, Andy, <laughs> which means the only people with the incentive to actually do something are much younger people. And one of that group stepped up this week, specifically a young 14-year-old student here in the United States who claimed that he could save significant resources and, much more importantly, money <laughs> if the government simply changed the font that it used on official documents and he was very wise to have a cash incentive planted in there Andy because otherwise he would not have been taken seriously oh Mr Congressman I have an idea to save, hu save huge resources get out of my office kid <laughs> oh, Mr Congressman I have an idea to save you 400 million dollars sit down son what can I do for you today uh, <laughs> severe merchant Darney was the kid in question. He's a 14-year-old from Pittsburgh, and he simply suggested that the government use the font Garamond, one of the oldest fonts around, rather than Times New Roman, as it is apparently 25% lighter and thinner, which could result in hundreds of millions of dollars of savings on ink costs. And he pointed out in an interview on CNN that ink is actually two times more expensive than French perfume by volume, uh, referring to the fact that Chanel Number no. 5 costs $38 per ounce, while an ounce of Hewlett-Packard printer ink costs around $75 an ounce. And that is why, Andy, before I go out anywhere special, I dab a bit of ink behind each ear, I spray a mist of ink into the air, and then I walk through it. And then, if I'm going on a date, I squirt a couple of blasts of ink down the front of my underpants. Why, Andy? Because I'm a classy gentleman, Andrew. That's why. That's right. And when I enter an expensive restaurant, I want people to turn around and say, holy shit, that guy stinks of ink. <laughs> well, I, when I first uh, entraptured in, my now wife, uh, I had uh, yep. done something similar. In fact, I had the, the lyrics to Hey You, The Rocksteady Crew printed on my mm -hmm. face in Hattenschweiler font, which is a very bold yep. font. It really gets the... Uh, Message, uh, message for any school so and university for any school and university students out there. This is not an excuse for not having done 
your homework, handing in a heavily scented piece of blank paper saying, yeah, sure, I wrote my 5,000-word essay on why modern lions never lay eggs, but I thought I'd save money, so I have written it in Hugo Boss, poor Om. <laughs> poor Om. <laughs> Is that Hugo Boss? I don't know. I'm a bit out the, uh, out the perfume loop. Chris, I bet, you, bet you're not afraid of a bit of Hugo friend. Boss in the morning. I, I uh, of course, regularly wear uh, Hugo Boss in my fountain pen. <laughs> I love the smell of Hugo Boss in the morning. That was before they deployed to Vietnam. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's a difficult thing for America, John, to, to, to downsize its font because that looks like it's not emphasising things as much, and that's uh, that's a difficult right. thing. Uh, that's a difficult thing for America. But um, um, it's always been. Well, that was the pushback. You see, you yep. joke, that was the pushback. There's been some pushback on these kids' claims from experts who argue that people would simply make the font bigger instead and then print it out, to which I guess the 14-year-old would reply, well, don't f***ing do that. <laughs> so putting the ball very much back in their court. But it's, uh, I mean, it is uh, actually going back through American history. There, there have been times when they have been more concerned about, about saving money on things like this. That's why they went with uh, In God We Trust as the national uh, national slogan, rather than fingers crossed, which is two letters longer and basically means exactly the same. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's also just this ink saving as well. We elected to do the Bugle as an audio newspaper rather than the printed yes, one. Yes, it is. Uh, so we're all right. leading the way. There are other economisations that could be made along similar lines, been suggested by various uh, people on the back of this suggestion by this uh, 14-year-old. All public sector workers are going to be made to wear three-quarter length trousers. Uh, which might look silly, but will save a lot of materials. And if that works, we rolled out further to make all public sector workers wear speedos and bikinis. Worked in Baywatch when Senator Pamela Anderson was Secretary of State for Coastal Safety. Um, they're also planning to save on the cost of inaugurating a sitting president who's won re-election by allowing to, him to re-inaugurate himself online like a library book. And they will also think of shortening the national anthem to save on band high costs, <laughs> instrument wear, and the deleterious economic effect of people welling up with pride by reducing the song to simple oh say can you see yup it all looks fine um, <laughs> and the White House is set to be painted black to retain heat better and save on energy costs might get too hot in the summer but it's got a big garden they can all work outside Napoleon Wang news now <laughs> and uh Napoleon Bonaparte has been in the headlines this week. Um, yep. Well, to be honest, not all of Napoleon, just um, the part of him that puts the boner in Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> a, the background to this is a new documentary series in the United Kingdom called Dead Famous has attempted to find the remains of some uh, of the key figures of history, such as uh, Hitler's hair and Elvis's DNA, and they claim to have found Napoleon's penis in, where else, New Jersey. <laughs> now... <laughs> It's not just the location of the penis which has made headlines, Andy. It's also the size of it, which yep. has been confirmed, apparently, as, and I quote, very small. <laughs> or, to be exact, it's been measured at one and a half inches. Now, that's a, it's a little unfair for a start, Andy. It's been very cold over here recently. Plus, again, in his defence, Napoleon has been dead for nearly 200 years <laughs> and his penis has not been attached to his body for a long time. That will... I don't want to come across like a Flomax commercial, but that will inhibit blood flow. So, <laughs> that will not give you those yeah. crucial extra visible inches. Now, you might, you, you might well ask, why is Napoleon's severed penis in New Jersey? <laughs> to which... I think I'd say... Mind your own business, Bugler! <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I'd say, fair question, but also, 
Why not, exactly? <laughs> Why not? Perhaps that was in Napoleon's will. Perhaps it read, please give my earthly belongings to my family and um, please sever my penis from my body and send it to New Jersey and keep it there until it can be measured by a documentary crew in a couple of centuries' time and I may, may be humiliated once more. Uh, this is my final will and testament. Hold on, you didn't actually write that penis thing down, did you? Oh, shit, I'm dead! <laughs> well, it does raise questions about exactly what happened at the autopsy. When this penis was cut off, apparently. <laughs> Cause of death, uh, stomach cancer, possibly aggravated by blood poisoning. Right, let's wrap the bastard up in foie gras and pop him in his baguette-shaped casket. Oh, hang on, who wants his penis? Anyone want his penis? You want his penis? You're not like the kind of guy that likes to take a penis away with you as a souvenir for your mum. I'll tell you what, I'll lop it off, you can have Napoleon's penis. Just don't sell it. Do not sell it to a dealer in New Jersey. <laughs> the, the current owner... Of Napoleon's penis, as it is clear by now, is not Napoleon. And it is... It's, it's instead a man called Evan Latimer, who was given it, given it by his father, a renowned urologist, after he bought it at a Paris auction for $3,000. The relic is apparently known among the Latimer family as, I quote... Napoleon's item. <laughs> now, that is a hell of an inheritance, Andy. Yep. To my daughter, I give my house. To my grandchild, I give my car and what is left of my money. And to my son, Evan, I give Napoleon's penis. <laughs> Please refer to it in the future as Napoleon's item, my son, as I want it to sound even funnier. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Latimer said of his father... That item, believed- is a, item is a... Um- uh, it's an acronym uh, uh-huh. for incredibly tiny ex-member, I believe. <laughs> Latimer said of his father, Dad believes that urology should be proper and decent and not a joke. Well, he's got a f***ing funny way of showing that, Andy. <laughs> he's, he's backed that claim up by going and buying the seven, penis of French, seven penises of French leaders and then giving it to his children. <laughs> Did you say the seven penises of French leaders? Se- seven severed penises. <laughs> Where are the other six, Evan? Where are the other six, Evan? <laughs> well, as you say, it's understandable. Release the penises, Evan! <laughs> <laughs> it is understandable that Napoleon is not especially bony part, might not be the most proapic of leaders' love worsts, because... Uh... Where's Francis Drake's dick? <laughs> <laughs> not... <laughs> not, um... Not only as you, uh, as you suggested, has he been dead for 200 years, but in 1812... Yes. Yeah. Uh, he famously invaded Russia, and the French army was beaten back by the savage winter. So it's not surprising that even in life he probably picked up a bit of a shrivel, and uh, his uh, his wangle really got its shrink on and never fully recovered. Also, he probably lived a very high-stress life, John, fighting yeah. lots of wars, lots of battles, like being a football manager, but more so uh, with the added problem of having the deaths of hundreds of thousands of soldiers on your conscience. So it's not surprising that yeah. uh, he maybe didn't nurture his nodular as much as he might have done. Um, famously, no, no, uh, no one can no one can say that Napoleon did not overcompensate for a small thing, Sandy. <laughs> you can't say that. They, back back then, that was the equivalent of buying a, an expensive sports car, <laughs> invading, invading anything vaguely near you. Um, also, possibly explains the uh, "not tonight" Josephine quotes. Um, no, yeah. darling, I'm not in the mood. And if you could stop referring to it as Marshall Maggot, I'd be a little more confident <laughs> in the bedroom. <laughs> But um, as you say, what an art! What an artifact to own. You know, I mean, I what don't know an what, artifact. What else do they have in the what? in the family? Oh. This is this is Great Uncle Rupert's medal from the Siege of Maffa King. This is a sculpture from 1832 <laughs> of a bronze hand slapping a concrete cheek, made specially to commemorate the Duke of Grunksha's unsuccessful pass at the Maharajina of Nawanga Saramasala. And this is King George the Fourth's knee symbols from when he used to play in a one-man band. And 
Uh, what's this, you ask? No, 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 it's not a dried slug from Explorer Posto and Gerviard's <laughs> journey down the Amazon in 1874. Uh, no, it's not a fossilised date left over from Cleopatra's Valentine's Day sweetie box given to her by Mark Antony. No, no. No, no, it is, it, it is Napoleon's penis. Yes, that it, Napoleon's 200-year-old dismembered dead penis. Yeah, no, we, yeah. All, we do keep it on the mantelpiece, yes. Yeah. Uh, Evan <laughs> apparently said of uh, Napoleon's item, yes, it's very small, but it's famous for being small. It's perfect structurally. The university have done x-rays and examinations, and it's obvious what it is. Well, yes, it is obvious what it is, Andy. It's a severed penis. <laughs> I'm a- guessing that when they brought that item into the university for examination, the uh, people at the university said, hold on. Why the f*** have you brought a severed penis in here? It's what, Evan? It's Napoleon's penis. Well, that makes even less sense now. <laughs> Do you know how they found out uh, it was Na- definitely Napoleon's? Because the uh, the tattoo of the Duke of Wellington on it, with, with an even smaller penis on him. So. Napoleon's penis has had quite a journey since it was last balanced on top of Napoleon's balls. <laughs> Apparently... Apparently, the penis, and this is true, was cut off during his autopsy by his somewhat cruel doctor, Francesco Ottomarici, in front of 17 witnesses, uh, all of which I hope recommended that that doctor was immediately struck off the medical register. It was, it was then acquired by priest Abbe Agnes Paul Vignali, who gave the leader his last right. It passed through Vignali's family before it was eventually bought by an American rare books dealer, A.S.W. Rochenbach, in 1924. And let's stop right there for a moment, because how on earth, Andy, does a rare books dealer suddenly branch out into the seven pe- seven penis collectors market. That's a heavy left turn <laughs> Do you think in terms so? of your interests. T- uh, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm mainly in the antique books game, to be honest. Any first editions by Austin or Dickens are always of interest to me. Um, I'm also always in the market for any nice John Donne volumes. Uh, they're always appealing. Always a market for those items, or indeed the severed penises of European leaders. <laughs> Do you have any of those on your shelves? <laughs> I'll I'll root around and see what I can find. <laughs> well, of course, during the, well, during the 1920s, there was a worldwide bookmark shortage, so it's understandable <laughs> that people took creative options. The penis, the penis was then displayed at the Museum of French Art in New York in 1927. And I am guessing, Andy, and it's just a guess, but I'm guessing that the Museum of French Art in New York in 1927 had an increase in visitors of about 10,000% that year. <laughs> What was it called as an artwork? Was it like by Marcel Duchamp? Called Eroticism Moir. So anyway, Evan Latimer now owns it and apparently has only allowed ten people to see it and is also anxious to stress that it's never been photographed or filmed. Oh, good, Andy. I'm go- At least that severed penis has been allowed some dignity. But I will say... It is a hell of a date closer for Evan Latimer, Andy. Would you like to come in for some coffee? Oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. I think I'd better get home. Okay. Um, would you like to come in for coffee and to take a look at Napoleon's severed penis? (laughs) Yes, Evan. (laughs) Yes, I would. Well, of course, um, 
Napoleon was not alone as a leader in uh, suffering this, uh, similar <laughs> afflictions. Many great leaders in history have suffered from genitoga, nadula, magnitudo, yep. numerical issues. Um, not only did Napoleon have a <laughs> microplonker like a depressed elderly gherkin, but uh, Adolf Hitler, 10-time winner yeah. of Europe's naughtiest dude award, famously possessed only one testicle from uh, a young age when living in the Austrian mm-hmm. town of Linz when his mother, yeah. Clara, the dirty bugger, uh, of course, she played for the ice hockey for the Lintz Dirty Bugs. Uh, cut off little Adolf's other testicle when he was small, uh, according to the song. Not clear from the song why she removed the boy's Teutonic uh, nadger, uh, whether as a disciplinary measure or an accident or an investment. All we know is that it did end up in the famous London concert venue, the Albert Hall. And new research suggests that she exchanged it with a ticket tout in exchange for front row seats to see the music hall singing sensation Minty Tutu in the Abattoir Chorus. Uh, whilst Russian saw Peter the Great, very much the opposite end of the schlong scale, John. He apparently had a kielbuschlop so long that rumour has it he had to tuck it into his boot. Uh, Peter was not only Europe's tallest monarch and one of the 18th century's leading dwarf owners, but also bought the entire pioneering replica penis collection of the Dutch anatomist Frederick Reich. And I cannot begin to explain what a nice sentence that was to say out loud. <laughs> I'm so close to Napoleon's severed penis right now, Andy. What could you I, get, can I you, didn't know how close <laughs> I was. It, it, New Jersey's just over the river. Could you not get, maybe, you know, with with your new HBO show, maybe get, see if you could get it on as a guest? Could get, <laughs> I mean, that would be a real coup, wouldn't it? That Coming up after Game of Thrones. Amazing booking. After Game of Thrones, John Oliver talks to Napoleon's severed penis. <laughs> I mean, the advertising space. Welcome, no one's going to be switching welcome, that welcome. off, John. No one is going to be switching that Welcome to the show, off. my guest tonight, Napoleon Severed Penis. Then skip your f***ing jokes and bring the guest out. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else is in Jersey? Uh, in the news in January, um, they revealed yep. that Hitler's toilet was also there. Really? Hitler's toilet seat. Just Man. up the road oh. from Napoleon's wang. <laughs> that, that would have been the most uh, strange item they had there until it <laughs> turns out that Napoleon's severed penis has been there the whole time. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm talking to my guest booker after this, Andy, now, and saying, now, this next booking <laughs> is a high degree of difficulty. <laughs> but I am telling you, I am guaranteeing you ratings. Um, this, uh, it's a very appropriate bugle to be doing this in because uh, this is the 4th of April 2014, and... Do you know what happened on the 4th of April, 1814, John? 200 years ago to this day what? was when Napoleon abdicated the French throne. There we go. What yeah. a coincidence that is. And his senior army leaders confronted him, Marshal Ney in particular, and said, uh, look, Napoleon, we really think you need to abdicate. And Napoleon replied, could you please stop using words with a syllable dick in them? You know <laughs> you know that upsets me. I'm just a bit <laughs> sensitive about it. Uh, sorry, uh, Napoleon. Said Marshall, we just think now is a suitable end for you. Did you say bell end, Marshall? No, 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 Napoleon. No, I didn't know. It's just that you've really overstayed your welcome now, and you've uh, been emperor too, too, too long now. Did you say tool? You know, I'm very, very sensitive about this, even though I've had much military success. Sorry, Napoleon. It's just basically we've <laughs> lost this war. Really, when we made that Russian push long before, did you say schlong? Quit staring at my tiny crotch. Sorry, sorry, Napoleon. It's just that the British are going to say. Napoleon Bonaparte, he has to go. Look, you just said Pole and Bona in two words. I'm sorry, I was just saying your name. Remember, you said member. Sorry, look, if, if you don't step down, you could be executed, you know, shot or I don't know how to put this. Well, hung. Stop it. I heard you say well hung. Stop it. Besides, it should be hanged, not hung. A person is hanged. A picture is f***ing hung. Not if it's a picture of your groin, it isn't. F- 
you, Marshall Ney. F*** you. <laughs> right, I need to calm down. Get the court keyboard player to come and tinkle the ivories. Oh, you don't want to do that, Napoleon. They'll be onto you straight away. The miniature pianist starts playing. Did you say miniature penis? You are fired. You are f- all fired. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm nearly 40. Nearly 40 years old. And I think, John, what we've learned from this is exactly why the world will never fully address the problems (laughs) outlined in the IPCC report. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true! (laughs) That is why we're f***ed. We are an easily distracted species, John. It's almost like... It's about 20% a joke, that, Andy. (laughs) I don't want to be cynical about this, but it's almost like this story about Napoleon's penis was planted in the press this week just to distract high-end satirical shows like this. The only thing you're going to remember from this... Oh, that bugle, about uh, that was the one about Napoleon's severed penis, wasn't it? (laughs) They did the whole thing on that. Sports news now, and, well, it's the Grand National this weekend. Uh, John, gone uh, the days when uh, some of the fences at the Grand National were very dangerous. They contained hidden spears, or when the water jump was filled with hydrochloric acid, or, of course, the famous controversy when the chair was an electric chair. But uh, horse safety, uh, still an area of considerable debate, uh, as whenever we get to the Grand National with a number of uh, fatalities at the meeting most years. On the one hand, there are those who say that jeopardising the well-being and lives of these magnificent animals just to provide a gambling-dependent spectacle is inhumane, cruel and intolerable in a supposedly civilised 21st century. Then there are those who say that these animals are given a life that other horses cannot even dream of for a sport rooted in history and community and mankind's interaction with the natural world and that the benefits outweigh the drawbacks, uh, even when those drawbacks involve a tarpaulin and a bolt gun. And there are others still who say, come on, number 17, shift it, shift it, you used to slum for a Frenchman's burger filling. Come on, yes, he don't, come on, little probably Irish guy, smack him with your go-faster stick. Fucking smack him harder, he's nearly winning. Smack him like a Victorian schoolboy and telling he's a naughty horsey. Get in, yes, yes, I am 12 pounds richer. Get in. So they're very much three sides to the sandwich. And I guess from the horse's point of view, they must be charging around Aintree thinking, yes, if I so much as look like I might have a dodgy leg, I am a dead horse. But if I can win it, that is 10 years of jiggy on tap in a stud farm. Oh, yeah. So uh, massive, massive gambling, uh, gambling weekend. And it's been... uh, an interesting time for uh, bookmakers in this country, uh, John, in uh, other gambling news. The retrospective betting specialist Historic Odds had to shut down after making massive losses on its first day of trading. Uh, punters went in big on the result of the 1966 Football World Cup final. Historic Odds were offering England 2, West Germany 2 after 90 minutes at 24-1, to 1, so they got really stung on that one, uh, whilst the result of the Battle of Bosworth in 1485 that really hit them hard too. Wars of the Roses fans all went in big on Lancashire to beat Richard III's Yorkshire team at 5-2. to two. And uh, Henry Kissinger winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, historic odds uh, are odds given of 150-1. to one, Now looking very stupid indeed. Uh, no time for your emails this week, largely because most of you emailed in about Napoleon's penis, so I think we've basically, uh, basically covered it. <laughs> They've been answered. Your emails have been answered. Uh, do, do keep them uh, coming into uh, info at thebuglepodcast.com. 
Don't forget to book your tickets for Political Animal on the uh, 17th uh, of April. I had a couple of uh, queries, John. You've mentioned your forthcoming HBO show. Uh, a number of people saying yeah. you haven't mentioned what it's actually called yet, so they could look out for it. Um, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. That's what it's called. There you go. It's called Last Week Tonight. So um, that'll be coming up in, um, what, th- two, three weeks? Three, three weeks. Three weeks. That's ages. Yeah, plenty That's of time, absolutely isn't it? ages. <laughs> Uh, so don't forget to check out our SoundCloud page soundcloud.com slash the hyphen bugle um, you can get uh, your bugle merch and take out your voluntary subscriptions to keep this podcast uh, free and independent uh, at thebuglepodcast.com and don't forget if you are in the New Jersey area if you do see Napoleon's penis out for a walk just let it let it live in peace you know let it don't don't give it hassle John don't give it hassle Goodbye. Bye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss Lime Bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now. <laughs>